Good morning, everyone. Our reading is from 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 9. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Hemelech the priest. And Hemelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Hemelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. And, w- and with which I have charged you, and I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Hemelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that take it for there is none but that here and david said there is none like that give it to me this is the word of the lord good morning everybody want to welcome our zoomers to all our folks on live stream good morning everybody um, let's open with a word of prayer Lord, we do pray that you would haste the day when our faith shall be sight, when the sky be rolled back like a scroll, Jesus will descend with a trumpet blast, and Lord, we will rise and meet him and accompany him to to the earth, Um, that day of resurrection for your saints. Lord, we look forward to that, and this morning as we open in prayer, it's a time to pray for your saints who who are ill. And uh, Lord, I want to pray especially for our sister Joanne. Um, she fell this morning and um, was uh, put back in her chair by an emergency crew. And now, Lord, she's, she's going to the emergency room. And Lord, we just pray for our sister Joanne that you would be with her. Um, she's been alone since her husband and her daughter died. And, um, and uh, Lord, we haven't seen her here in the facility in quite a while but she is still part of us. And so would you please be with her this, this afternoon and uh, this evening? And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would give her relief, whether that is medical intervention to, to take care of the pain, um, Lord, that uh, maybe just a miraculous healing would take place for her, or Lord, maybe you'd call her home. Uh, but whatever it is that you have for her, Lord, we pray that she would uh, accept it graciously and and with the thought that it is uh, from your hand and and that you do care for her and love her. So be with our sister, um, Joanne, we ask, and uh, bring her healing and and relief. And uh, Father, I also want to pray for our previous pastor, Daniel, as he's 
uh, had um, cancer and, and it's been gone. And now, Lord, it, it seems like it's coming back and he'll be having to go through more chemotherapy. And Lord, we just pray for him and, and that you would uh, work in him and through him in his weakness. Lord, you said that in our weakness, your strength is perfected. Your strength is brought to completion. So in Daniel, this was a very strong man, that uh, a strong brother in the Lord. And uh, Lord, maybe in this weakness, you will show uh, your work in and through him. So have mercy on him and uh, his family as, as they're going through this. We pray for Calvary Evangelical Free, uh, where he's pastoring. Uh, Lord, that um, they would be supportive of their pastor and help him through this difficult time, help him through the struggle of, of uh, medical problems and uh, just be a blessing to him. And Lord, we pray for his restored health as well. And then, Lord, for uh, Katie Crawford, um, where we prayed for her mom a couple of weeks ago, they moved back to the Midwest just at the right time. Thank you for your providence in their lives as they moved back, and now Katie's mom's been diagnosed with cancer. And, uh, Father, we pray for the, the tests and the procedures that are coming up for her in the coming weeks, the MRI, the, the biopsy, those kinds of things. And, and, Lord, I pray that her doctor has really strong and clear insights. He thinks it's breast cancer, Lord. If that's the case, then I pray that you would help them resolve that soon. And if not, uh, help him to diagnose it correctly. But uh, we just pray for Katie and for Chris as they're there to support their parents. And we pray for uh, Katie's mom that she would bring her health and, and restoration as well. And so, Lord, uh, again, we pray um, for your sovereignty over the church, over us, over your people. Uh, we trust you. We know that you're good whether that is in our sickness or in our, our strength, whether it's in our weakness or, or in our health. Uh, Lord, we trust you, and we want you to accomplish great and wonderful things in us. And then that would show out to the world that you are real and that God is powerful to overcome, powerful to, to sustain in, in uh, times of trouble. And so, Lord, be glorified, we ask. And Lord, I also pray that you'd be with us now. Holy Spirit, would you open your text to us? Help us to see and to understand what it is that you're telling us in the story of David. Um, Lord, we need to hear with, with ears of faith. And so come and be with us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, there was a family, uh, the Palmers. Uh, Francis was the father. Uh, Phoebe was the mom. And they had three kids. Uh, Loretta, Cecilia, and uh, Byron. Um, in the mid-1800s, so this is a while ago, they moved to a farm in very upstate New York, almost to the border. And uh, not too long after that, Loretta and Cecilia uh, married and moved away. And so the people that were left on the farm were Francis, Phoebe, and Byron. Well, Byron, Byron had also married. And so he and his wife were there. And in uh, 1865, Byron and Susan had a baby boy named Elmer. Uh, tragically, about 10 years later, um, Byron passed away. Um, sometime before 1880, so not too long after that, Phoebe also died. And so in 1880, Francis, the, the patriarch of the family, established a will. And in his will, he said he was going to give everything to his grandson, Elmer, and that uh, there would be a provision for his daughters, there was some money for them, but the bulk of his estate would go to Elmer. And while Elmer was still underage, his, um, his mother, Susan, would be kind of the uh, benefactor for that. Uh, so that was the, the will that was established. In March, on March 16th of 1882, Francis remarried. He married Eliza Breeze. And they had what we would today call a prenup, a prenuptial agreement. 
And the prenup was that she would not exercise her rights to inherit from her husband, but that she would remain on the farm and the farm would continue to produce for her and, and sustain her for the rest of her life. Well, somewhere along that line, Elmer became, or um, uh, Francis became disillusioned with uh, Elmer, just really dissatisfied with the way he was living his life. And he threatened him and said, if you don't straighten up, if you don't start living right, I'm cutting you out of my will. So um, on April of 1885, in April of 1885, at the tender age of 16, Elmer Palmer poisoned his grandfather to prevent him from changing the will. Uh, he was, in August, he was found guilty, and he was sentenced to uh, uh, the Elmira Correctional Facility in New York, where he served over four years. After his release, Elmer's aunts, Francis's daughters, sued the estate and said, Elmer can't inherit because he would be benefiting from the crime that he committed. And so it, uh, it went to the New York State Court of Appeals, and the uh, opinion, the majority opinion, uh, Justice Robert Earl wrote, he said, in part, it is quite true that the statutes regarding the making of wills and the devolution of property, if literally construed, give this property to the murderer. The problem was there was nothing on the books that says you can't benefit from your crime. It was just kind of an understood thing. So even though they said if you literally take the law, then Elmer gets to inherit, the justices decided that he should not, that it would be wrong for him to inherit and, and benefit from the murder that he, uh, he committed. Um, in the dissent, one of the judges dissented, uh, that was Judge Gray, and he argued that criminal law had established the punishment for murder. It was murder in the second degree, this is how you punish someone, and he argued that denying this young man his inheritance went beyond that, and the court had no legal grounds to go beyond that. So this case is called Riggs versus Palmer, and it is what's referred to as a landmark case in law. This is a law, this is a case, this is a, a, an opinion that people appeal to, to say you can't benefit from your crime. And what's really fascinating about it, what's really interesting is the way that it's discussed in law school is this is a question of philosophy of law. This is a, a principles of law because there was nothing on the book saying that couldn't happen. So why did the judges interpret it the way they did? And that's where we get that term, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. So what the judges said was just because it's not in the books, you can't expect the legislature to figure out every single possibility. Elmer's crime was so heinous, they hadn't considered it. But according to the spirit of the law, that was not something that he should benefit from. And so that was how that was decided. It's still a landmark case today. I remember during the pandemic, I can't, I racking my brain trying to remember who this was. Somebody was arrested, put in jail and wrote a book. They appealed to Riggs versus Palmer to say he can't benefit from the crime that he committed just because he wrote a book on it. So he wasn't able to make money off the book that he wrote. So it's still landmark. So that idea of the spirit of the law not necessarily the individual letters of the law. That's what we're gonna see this morning in this story about David on the run. So last week, what we saw was um, that story about Jonathan warning David that Saul had lost his mind and was gonna kill him. That was the big story. And what happened at the end of last chapter was David took off. This is part two. We pick up with David again, where'd he go? What happened? Well, where he went was he went to Nob where the, uh, the tabernacle was apparently. It had been at Shiloh earlier in the, in the book. Remember at the beginning, he would go to Shiloh. Shiloh was where it was, but 
apparently Shiloh got attacked, and so the, uh, the tabernacle got moved. So now it's at Nob, and Ahimelech is the priest. Now, Ahimelech is actually one of the descendants of Eli. And you can remember when Eli was cursed, he said, you're not going to have anybody sit on the, on, or be the priest. Your sons are going to die, and, and those two sons died. This is somebody from his, his descendants, and it's just where he's at. We're going to hear more about Ahimelech in a little while. So let me just kind of sum up the story, and then we'll get to some of the questions about it. So David goes, and he comes to the tent, and um, it says that Ahimelech was trembling. He was frightened. So why is he frightened? Well, everybody knows David. Everybody knows David is one of Saul's biggest generals. He is a big-time military leader, and he's showing up alone. So I think Ahimelech is looking at this and saying, what could this mean that David is by himself? Did he escape from the battle? Oh, have we been defeated? What's going on? So he's, he's afraid that David is there, not because he's afraid for his life, but what could this mean? And so David says to him, the king has charged me with a matter and said, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I charge you. I've made an appointment with a young man for such and such a place. So he says, look, I'm on the run. My men are going to join me someplace later. I'm, I just need some help. Um, that's the story. So Ahimelech hears that, and he's like, oh, well, I'm helping my country. The general is here. He's in need. I'm going to help him out. So he's, he says, um, well, what can I give to you? What do you need? He says, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread if you got them. Just something. I need some food because I left in such a hurry. Ahimelech says, look, I don't have anything on hand. I don't have any bread on hand. All I've got are the, um, the holy bread. And what he's talking about there is in the tabernacle, there was a table on one side near the, uh, the lampstand, and on there was a tray, and they put 12 loaves of unleavened bread on it. And every week on the Sabbath, they would take the old bread out and put fresh warm bread in, and that was holy. So he says, that's all I've got is this holy bread. Um, and then he says, so I can let you have it if, if the uh, vessels of the young men are clean. Now, what he's talking about there is he's, he's saying, you can eat the holy bread as long as you're not ritually impure. If, if you've got some ritual impurity, then you can't have it. And so David says, truly, women have been kept from us when I go on in the expedition. Um, so how much more this one? This was so urgent. You know, if we haven't had time to be with women, if we don't do that normally, how much less have we had a chance there? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread but the bread of the presence, and he gave it to him. Um, then we get kind of an aside, kind of steps out of the scene for a second. A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, and he was a chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he was probably at the tabernacle, detained because they were talking about maybe some sacrifice that was coming up and he's he's having to deal with which animals and how many are you going to need and that kind of stuff is probably my guess what's going on and so then after david gets the food he says do you have any weapons i didn't even have a chance to pick up my my weapons on the way out and ahimelech says well the only thing i've got is the sword of goliath whom you killed by the way and it's wrapped in it says a cloth but really the word is cloak so it might, one of the theories is it's wrapped in, in Goliath's own cloak or something, but it, it's not important. It's wrapped in a cloth, and it's behind the ephod. And David says, hey, there's nothing like that. I'll take that one. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of Goliath's swords, I, he's a giant. I'm thinking he's got a gigantic sword. Probably not, or David wouldn't be able to use it. He'd just walk with it, dragging behind him. So it's probably just a good, well-built sword. 
And so David takes that. And, um, and that's it. That's the end of the story. So what's going on here? I, for me, this raised a handful of questions. Uh, there's just some things that left me scratching my head. So first of all, David says, um, I've appointed to meet the young man at such and such a place. Were there young men with him? Maybe. Maybe not. The reason I say maybe not is because in the last chapter, he was out in a field by himself. It was he and Jonathan alone who discussed what had happened, and Jonathan told him to run, and he took off by himself. The young men are not present here. They're only discussed. And in the next section, when he, sh he takes off and he goes to Gath, the young men are not present again. So were there young men present, or was he just flying on his own? Um, I don't know. Um, it could be that there were no young men and that he was, he was telling a fib. Um, but it might be that they were, that he had, he had left the presence of Jonathan and said, hey, you guys meet me at this place. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm on the run, but get your stuff together and meet me here. And that's why what he says in the, in the narrative. One of the problems with saying that they weren't young men there is that when Jesus tells a story, he says those who were with him. So if Jesus said that there were people with him, there were people with him. Okay, don't argue with that. Um, the possibility, though, is Jesus, in the context in which he's speaking, he's, he's rebuking the Pharisees for not understanding something. So it, it could be potentially that he's saying, you know, the, David and those people who are with him sarcastically as if what David did in taking the bread was bad enough, but he also lied about the men with him. That, that's a possibility. I think that's weak, weak sauce. It, it's probably just that the men are not featured in the story, just not uh, in the narrative. They're not the big point. David is. So what about David lying about the king's business? Is he on the king's business? Um, maybe, maybe not. If he's, if he's talking circumspectly in round kind of ways, the king did send him on this mission, didn't he? By threatening to kill him, chasing him out and saying, so he said, yeah, I'm on the king's business because the king's trying to kill me. And you know, this is, that's his business is to, to take me out. So I'm on the run. Um, but maybe he's not lying about the king's business. Notice he doesn't say Saul. He only says the king. Well, from the narrative, we know that Saul is not looking very kingly at this point. So perhaps what he's saying is the Lord had sent me. I think that's kind of weak as well, because why didn't he say I'm on the Lord's business? Why didn't he say I'm on the king's business? Um, and then he also says, the king said to me this. Well, the king didn't say to him that. So I think what he's doing is he's practicing a bit of a deception, saying, you know, trying to portray himself on this mission so that he doesn't get Ahimelech in trouble, that he doesn't, uh, you know, wind up drawing more attention to himself. We'll get back to that potential deception in a little bit. Um, what about Goliath's sword? Remember the story how when David slew Goliath, what did he do? He, the, the, um, uh, Chapter 17 ended by saying that he took Goliath's head and took it to Jerusalem and he put Goliath's armor in his tent. So it doesn't mention the sword. So what I said at that point at 17 is Jerusalem was still a Jebusite city at that point. That must be talking further in the future. So the head going to Jerusalem hasn't even happened yet. And he may still have his armor in his tent, but the sword we never hear about. So it's just possible that somebody took it and said, hey, the Lord worked a great victory in Israel today by defeating the Philistines, by, by taking out the giant. And so the, the sword, which David says, there is none like it. That is the best sword we've ever seen. We're going to take that and we're going to put that 
potentially in the temple, maybe somewhere near, or the tabernacles, maybe somewhere near it, like a tent near it or something, but it is as if it's loot gained from the, the victory. And so it's there to remember and to remind themselves, the Lord worked the victory for us. He took out the Philistines. He used a little shepherd boy to destroy a giant. And let's, let's have this as a memorial. What's it doing behind the ephod? That was the one that tripped me up for most of the, the week, trying to figure out what's going on. So first of all, ephod is a funny word. Um, when we think of ephod, we're probably going to think of that chest plate that um, Moses said would be built for the high priest, and it's got gems on it and gems on the shoulder and that kind of stuff. And in that goes the umum and the thumum, the, the lots that they would cast. That's what you think of as an ephod. So I'm thinking upper body kind of thing. But there's other uses of the word ephod where it's a skirt that a man would wear. And so it could be a skirt kind of thing, too. And then there's a use in some of the non-Hebrew traditions that it's a storage container, like maybe a box or something, all called an ephod. Man, that's really confusing. And so at first, this really troubled me because the last big mention of an ephod was in the book of Judges. And Gilead, after he had his great, tremendous victory, he made a golden ephod and set it up and they worshiped it. And so I was like, tell me that's not what this is, that they didn't set up the golden ephod in the tabernacle and have the sword behind it. I don't think there's a possibility in the world that that's that. There's no hint of it. There's no condemnation for idolatry or any of that kind of thing. So then what does it mean that the sword was behind the ephod? Well, I think the best answer that I've come across is it's where the priestly vestments were kept. So, you know, the priest wasn't allowed to just traipse around in, in the special garments that they wore in the tabernacle. They came in, they put them on, they did their business, they took them off, they went out. So they had to have a place to store them. So perhaps this is the, the vestry, to use a high church kind of term, where they would keep the special garments that they wore. And that's where they put the loot that was gathered and brought in. So it's, it's not a problem there. This Doag cat, though, he's, he's going to come back. We're going to see him again. And he's, he's trouble. He's not a good guy. But he's an Edomite. And an Edomite is not allowed in the tabernacle. So how is he detained before the Lord? Well, we know why he's there. He's probably there on the king's business dealing with flock issues. But what does it mean that he's detained before the Lord? I don't think it necessarily means that Doeg went into the tabernacle and stood before the Ark of the Covenant, because the Ark's not there. The Ark is still in somebody else's property. Remember, it got captured and they brought it back. David hasn't brought it back into Jerusalem yet. So I think he's just there at the tabernacle, and it's in, in the presence of the Lord. He was detained before the Lord and in that he was dealing with the business of the tabernacle. So I don't think that's really the big problem. Here's the problem. Did David and or Ahimelech break the law? Did they sin by giving David the bread? That's the question. And the reason I ask that question is because Leviticus establishes how that bread is to be handled. Leviticus 24, beginning of verse 5 says, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall, each, uh, shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on a table of pure gold, and set next to them two piles, six in a pile and, and six in a pile. You shall put pure frankincense on each pile, and it shall go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offering, 
a perpetual dew. So they have to put these two piles of loaves in front of the Lord in the tabernacle. They put frankincense on it. They put oil on it. And when Aaron and his sons eat it, they have to eat it in a holy place. In other words, you don't take, you know, grab a couple, wrap them up in a napkin and take them home as a doggy bag. They're to be eaten in the tabernacle by Aaron and his sons. So this is where I got that letter of the law versus the spirit of the law thing. The letter of the law says that David has no right to that bread. He cannot eat that. That is only for Aaron. He can't take that bread and go out on a mission with it because it has to be eaten in a holy place. This is sacred, consecrated bread because it's been in the tabernacle for a week. So what's going on? Well, I think, notice that they get changed out on the Sabbath. So since there is bread there, this is probably either on the Sabbath or pretty close to it because the bread wasn't consumed yet. And Ahimelech says, I don't have any other bread to give you. I've got nothing else to hand you except for this consecrated bread. So this raises the question of the spirit of the law versus the letter. So did Ahimelech sin by, take, by giving the bread to David? Did David sin by eating the bread? Well, it depends on how you treat law, how, how you approach rules. How do you feel about rules? Um, generally, there are, I think, three kinds of people. There are people who love the rules, sticklers for the rules, go over every individual rule, you have to do it all. There are people who are a little bit more loosey-goosey with it. Yeah, it's kind of a suggestion. And then there are people who, when you tell them the rule, they purposely break it. Don't stand on this red line, and they stand on the red line and go, what are you going to do, you know, kind of thing. So there's three approaches to rules. Now, when I was in basic training, they begin to build into you a real paying attention to the rules. When you step out the door, as you're crossing the threshold, you put a hat on. You don't do it two steps after you get out. You don't do it two steps before you get in as you cross the threshold. And if you see somebody without a hat, you correct them. So the military kind of bred into me that legalism is we've got these rules. You've got to stick to these rules. Um, ask Lisa when I'm driving, that's when I'm worse at it. Um, you have a turn signal. The turn signal is intended to tell people that you're going to turn. You don't turn on the turn signal after you pull into the left turn lane, come to a full stop and are sitting there for a minute and then turn it on. We know what you're doing. And so I get really picky about the rules of the road unless I'm breaking them and they don't apply. But how do you feel about rules? What's your approach to the rules? Are you a stickler for them? Are you like, yeah, it's a kind of a good guideline? Or are you a rule breaker, perpetual rule breaker? That's kind of what's going on here. This is the question is, is how are you going to approach this question with, with David? Did he violate it? Well, I think you have to kind of step back and say, well, are all rules the same? Do all rules have the same um, force? Are they all is equally important? And you have to say no. Not all of God's laws are equally important. Because Jesus was asked, what is the most important law? What is the number one rule? And Jesus said, the first is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. There's number one. And the second, wait, there's a second one. There's two. That's underneath the first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus approaches the law and he says, look, they're not all the same. If you don't tithe your mint and cumin, that's not quite as bad as not loving the Lord your God. There's, there's a, a structure to them. Now, when I say that, I want to be careful here because I'm not saying that some of the laws just don't matter. Um, or if there's a conflict, you don't have to worry about it. Go with the higher one. God authored all of these laws. God authored all the laws that are in the book of Moses. He's authored all the laws that are in the New Testament. They're all his rules. And when he authors them, they are not in conflict. 
So you're not going to find in the Bible a place that says, thou shalt wear purple socks. And another place that says, thou shalt never wear purple socks. And say, now what am I supposed to do? I've got, I got these in conflict. So if we run into a conflict like this, especially like what we're looking at today, what we have to say is, this is not a conflict. God didn't do this in a way that would be harmful. But he's saying there is a higher order to our laws, to the rules. So when, when Ahimelech looks at David and he says, what should I do here? Well, David is a human being and he's going to starve if I don't give him something. When I look around, I don't have any food. I don't have anything else to give him. All I've got is this holy bread. So now I can, can I send him away and say, nope, sorry, you know, you're on your own. Go, go figure something else out. I can't give you this because this is holy. And potentially kill a man when I've got something he could eat. So what, what Ahimelech is doing is he's looking at David and he's saying, here's a man in genuine, real need, and I have to meet that need. And so when I look at this holy bread, I would never give this to anybody under ordinary circumstances. This is extraordinary. And so, yes, it is holy. Yes, it is dedicated. That doesn't mean that the most important thing is the bread. And human beings can just die because they can't have this bread. We kind of ran into this earlier, didn't we? When Saul had gone and he defeated the uh, Amalekites and the people said, well, we're going to take the best of their livestock. When Samuel showed up, he said to Saul, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? And Saul's response was, hey, you know, the people wanted to bring the best. We took only the best of the livestock because we want to come and we want to sacrifice it to the Lord. Isn't that great? And Saul's response was, obedience is better than sacrifice. Yeah, those are wonderful animals. The Lord told you to kill them. What are you doing? So it's a similar thing here as you're looking at David and you're saying, here's a man about to die. He's going to starve to death if I don't give him something. The only thing I've got is consecrated bread. I'll give him the bread. It's not the end of the world if he eats it. Now, this isn't the end of that question because Jesus brought this up. Jesus dealt with this question. And um, there's, it's mentioned in, in the synoptics a couple of places. The one I like, I think, is in Matthew 12. So let me just read what happens there. Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and so they began to pluck heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on, to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the tabernacle is here. And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus' response is, here's what's going on, is they're walking along during the Sabbath and they go through a grain field. Now, according to the law, I, don't remember, I didn't look it up, but according to the law, it's okay to pluck stuff out of your neighbor's field. The rule was just don't put a sickle to your neighbor's field. So you could walk through and go, I'm hungry, and strip off a handful of, of uh, wheat husks. And so as they're walking, they're rubbing their hands together to kind of to thresh the wheat and get the kernels out. And then they're just popping the kernels in their mouth as they go. Now, the part that cracks me up is, were the Pharisees out in a wheat field on the Sabbath just hanging around? I get the impression these yutzes were following Jesus around, waiting for him to do something wrong so they could come in and correct him. And so they, they see the, the, uh, the apostles or the disciples 
rolling the grains together, blowing the chaff off and eating. They're threshing grain on the Sabbath, and that's not allowed. They're, they're going to nail him on it. It's just, it's, it's comical how these people were so on the first scale, right? I am all about the laws. So Jesus, it, he throws it back in their face. He says, look, David ate the consecrated bread, and it was no big deal. He was hungry. He needed that. How much more? These guys are hungry. Am I going to tell them just starve to death because it's the Sabbath? That's, that's ridiculous. And then he says, he mentions the temple, and he says, you know, on the temple, the priests profane the Sabbath. They do work on the Sabbath. In other places, he said, you will circumcise somebody on the Sabbath. You're doing work, and it's okay. In other words, what he's saying to them is, you don't understand the Sabbath. You don't understand the rules. You're trying to make them a bigger deal than they are. I saw something on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I can't even, fortunately, I couldn't find it because it would just make me mad again. But it was a, a meme, you know, a picture, and it said, um, uh, you know, there, there was Pharisees get on Jesus about the Sabbath, and then they turn the card over, and Jesus' answer is, oh, I'm God. And that just bugged me. I was like, first of all, it's not complete. I don't know what that means, but if you're saying that Jesus could just look at the Sabbath and go, yeah, forget it. I don't feel like doing that because I'm God. I'll do whatever I want. Jesus also said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So he's not waving his hands and going, I oh, forget the Sabbath because I don't feel like it. What he's saying is you don't understand the rules. You don't understand that the priority of the law is mercy is better than that. Mercy is better than following those little nitnoy rules and, and focusing on every little dot and tittle, and we better make sure we... What is more merciful here? In a normal situation, in, when you're not you know, walking with the Messiah and starving, don't work on the Sabbath. Plan ahead. Take it easy. But when you've got something greater than the temple standing right next to you, and you're following after him, don't die. Go with him. And, and a little work, a little rubbing of the hands together, that's not a violation of the Sabbath. That's not what the heart of the Sabbath is. So that, that is where I think Jesus is showing us, look, something greater than the tabernacle is here, something greater than the temple. You've got not a picture of the presence of God. You've got himself walking with you. So when I tell you what the Sabbath is, I'm right. Why? Because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who established the Sabbath. Jesus later would look at him and say, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the most important thing on the Sabbath is the person, not what the person's doing or what they're not doing. And so we, we appeal back to the two laws. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Not love the Sabbath, love the Lord, love your neighbor. So in, in the context, you, you're going to be concerned about your brother on the Sabbath to help them to obey, to help them do that, but you're not going to crush them if you're not. So let's go back to Ahimelech here for a second. We've got to look at this story through Ahimelech's eyes because kind of like last week, it was Jonathan was the star of the show. He was the one in every scene doing all the action. Ahimelech is the big driving factor in this story. Consider Ahimelech's perspective. He steps out of the tabernacle and here comes David looking haggard. No, no weapons, no troop, no entourage with him, just running up the path, and it scares him. What's going on? So when David comes to him, he's, he's got a genuine concern for David, a genuine worry about what's happened, David. Tell me what's going on. And so when David says, look, I don't have any food, Ahimelech's desire is, he, it's, it's interesting that he, he says two different things. He says, number one, all I've got is the holy bread, and number two, are your vessels clean? So what he does is the first thing he says is, I'm going to love my neighbor. 
David needs bread. My neighbor needs bread. I'm going to provide bread. But I love the Lord first. So I don't want you to eat this in an unpure, unclean manner. Have you kept yourself clean? Now, when he says they kept their vessels clean, and David mentions women, it's not that women contaminate men and make them unclean and dirty and bad stuff. All right? This is it's just a bad reading of it. If you have a bodily omission, that makes you ritually unclean. If they have been with women, they may have a bodily omission, and that would make them unclean. Not the women, but what happens to the man. So that's the question, is have you been with women? Nope, haven't. Okay, then they're clean. So Ahimelech, first of all, cares about his neighbor. I want to feed you. But, first, but second of all, I want to make sure you're clean. I want to make sure you're right with the Lord, because I love the Lord my God first. And so that's how he applies it. And so when he hands David this bread, he's not being a stickler for the rules. He's not saying, let me, let me go back to Leviticus and read this again and, and explain to you what's going on. He just says, here, take the bread. Survive, be fed, and he takes care of them. So that's, that's Ahimelech's perspective on this. And so when we approach the question of the law, the rules, we need to approach it and say, don't forget, number one, love the Lord. Number two, love your neighbor. So let's say you have a friend who is struggling with pornography. They, they, they are just addicted to pornography. Humankind, is we just get addicted to things. So it could be pornography. It could be work. It could be uh, sloth, whatever it is, some, some sin that they're addicted to. You come to them and you say, all right, let me show you from the scripture. This is why this is a sin. Sloth is not to be tolerated. If he won't work, won't eat. So don't be slothful. Uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look to have lust at a woman, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. Don't do that. Don't look at pornography. Um, you know, money is the root of many evils. Don't be greedy. Whatever the sin is, you, you address them in that, and they go, okay, I understand. I get it. And you're working with them, and you're praying with them, and you're doing Bible studies with them, and they come back, and they went, I fell. I, I did it again. You know, I, I just totally blew off whatever I was supposed to do this week. I made excuses and I was just lazy. Or I, I got on the internet and I saw bad stuff again and I, I, I don't know what to do about it. Or, you know, I really got greedy with the money. What are you going to tell them at that point? Look, you violated the law. I told you and you violated it, so we're done. I'm, I'm done with you. Is that loving your neighbor as yourself? No. That is, that is loving the law as yourself. Would it be okay to look at him and go, well, you know, God's a big God, and it's okay if you do that, and, you know, don't, don't worry about it. You know, he, he'll overlook those things. Are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? No, you're trying to downplay him and make his holiness less than it is. So in the midst of that, we have to ahimelech this thing. We have to wrestle with it and go, yeah, I know the rules, and you shouldn't do that. Don't do that, but you did. Now, how do we get you back on track? Let's continue to work through this. So you're loving your neighbor by working with them, by walking with them, by helping them, encouraging them, and you're loving the Lord by saying, there is a standard to which you must adhere, and you are not adhering to it. And that's where we come back to Jesus saying, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is coming in and saying, something greater than the temple is here. You don't have to go back and reoffer a sacrifice. I have borne your sins. I have given you the Holy Spirit. I have put stacked things in your favor to fight and defeat that sin. I have put into your heart a love for the Lord. The Holy Spirit has shed abroad in your heart the love of God. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
You're not loving your neighbor as yourself if you're cheating them, if you're ripping them off, if you're stealing money for them. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself if you're being slothful and not serving them and not loving them. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself if you're looking after that woman to lust after her. You don't know what kind of a horrible situation she's in where she's stuck on the internet doing pornography. You're not helping here. Love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So we have to look at the law not for on, off, yes, no, you did, you didn't. We have to say there are places where we can express grace to somebody because we want them to honor the Lord. We want them to walk in holiness. And so when Ahimelech does this, he is not condemned anywhere in Scripture as being wrong. What he did was right and good and pure. He cared for his neighbor. He's going to pay a horrible price for it. We're going to hear about that, unfortunately, in in coming chapter. But he did what was right. And Jesus held him up and said, look what he did. And then he says, that points to me. That points to what I've done. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who consecrates you. I'm the one who makes you holy. You want holy bread? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the manna that came down from heaven. I'm the bread. You have to eat my body and drink my blood. I am the bread of life. I've come for you. I've come to provide for you. In your sin, in your brokenness, in your weakness, I'm here. He he said, I am the temple. Tear this temple down and in three days I'll rise it up again. Speaking of his own body, talking about his resurrection, that he would destroy that that death that we're going to face for our sins. He would make it a gateway to paradise. So this is the picture that we get is this is what Ahimelech is acting out. And I don't think he fully understood what was going on. He, He just was doing what the Lord had put on his heart to do. And he's honoring Jesus by feeding and providing for David. So I think there's a great lesson for here for us for when we are dealing with a brother or sister who's struggling, or if you're that brother and sister who's struggling, is know the rules, obey the rules. But when you don't, because you won't, don't flee, flee to Jesus. Go to the one who's greater than the temple. He will build you back up. He will restore you. He will provide. And then you come back at it again and you go, all right, attempt number two, I'm not going to be lazy. And then when you are, you go back to the temple. You go back to Jesus. And and Ahimelech is acting that out for us. It's just a beautiful picture of that. And so we only did the first half of chapter 21. The second part, uh, David is going to be on the run again. Like I said, he's going to be on the run for the rest of the, almost the rest of the book. He, He doesn't make it until the very end. Um, so next week we'll come back and we'll see him flee to Gath. And there's some problems with that one too. There's some real big head scratchers on that one too. Um, can't wait to deal with that. <laughs> That'll be great. Hopefully it'll point us right back to Jesus as this one did. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are greater than the temple. When the apostles were walking with you and they said, Lord, look at the, the stones and the gold and all of this. Uh, Lord, your response was, It's going to be flattened. It won't be 